As society seems to crumble around us, we make our way back to the foothills of the mountains. Rifles in hand, we set up our camp, and the light of our campfire filters up through the bases of the pine trees, and above the canopy of needles, we can see the cold stars in the dark night sky. We sit around the campfire, we laugh, we talk, we remember the issues of the past, and we look out beyond the pines into the dark veil of gray mist, and we see the movement, the shadows slumping around the ground, peering out through around the trees. The wild calls for us. Tonight, we talk. Around this campfire, thank you for joining me in the camp of the beyond. This is The Marauder Rises. Hey guys, how's it going? Hope you're having a, a blessed day. So, a little bit of a of some news. Bad Robin and I, the guy that I did the translating military uh, topics to civilians, uh, you know, the the last podcast that I did. Uh, he and I are planning on finishing up the part two um, this coming week. He went back um, to doing what he was doing. Sorry, can't really talk about the you'll just have to go back and listen to the last episode if you want uh to listen to him talk about some of the things that he's done and uh but anyways he he had to go back and so um he and I met to hung out hung out we're, we're actually we've been buddies for many many years now and so he went back and uh, uh so we're gonna finish it up via phone call um and, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's going to be a, another great episode. Um, I was really appreciative to have him on because he's incredibly knowledgeable, obviously, uh, about a lot of the topics that I'm passionate about. So it's great to have him on to be able to talk about some of those things, especially with many like-minded philosophies shared between us regarding gear and training and stuff like that. So anyways, moving on, uh, a little bit more news that I wanted to cover um, I have, you know, the, the Camp of the Beyond podcast has released about 11 episodes so far. This will be the 12th, but up until this morning, it was 11 episodes. And I just looked at the analytics just before I started this podcast uh, recording, and we're over 8,000 listens accumulated between just 11 podcasts, which is just kind of astounding to me. Um, I mean, really astounding. That's great. And so I appreciate it. Um, I am not doing it for the number of listens. Uh, I have no sense of desiring popularity or anything like that. Um, as you guys have probably, have probably, you might have heard me say before, I've been deleted off of Instagram numerous times. Um, the first time I had 25,000 followers on Instagram posting very similar stuff to what I am now. And, uh, well, I, I mean, I've gone through periods of, of not having... Uh, so any social media at all and I've gone through periods of having very low followers even on uh, you know other accounts that I've uh, I've put out and um, had very few followers and still got deleted by Instagram regardless so I'm not doing it for the followers I'm doing it because one I really like the community that we're in that uh, 
this social media community that we've got going where we can effectively uh, uh, think tank <laughs> in a lot of ways. We can think tank between guys about what gear is the best, how to best properly train. I mean, there, there, this whole battle between flat range training philosophy, um, practical field craft training philosophy, and merging between the two, and uh, all different other sorts of types of training philosophies, have effectively developed off of um, off of social media, right? And specifically Instagram. Uh, and now it's our little niche corner of the of the internet, right? But it's still a major win in my eyes, and I, th- I think it I think it serves its purpose well for those who are influenced by it because they're learning to become better defenders, better guardians, better outdoorsmen, better shooters, and so I think it's a, a great thing. Um, and I'd love to get it out to more people, but for me, it's it's not, you know. It's the, the saying, I want more people to be in on this community is not the same as saying, I want to want a bunch of followers, right? So um, if I get deleted again uh, and go back to having no followers at all or very little followers whenever I'm next able to get a new Instagram account going, well, that's fine by me, man. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll do what I got to do, right? So anyways, um, so since... Uh, Bad Robin and I. Bad Robin, by the way, is rem- his his Instagram uh, his Instagram username is at remedial underscore actions, which is a reference to remedial actions being like what you do in the event of catastrophic weapon malfunction or you know some sort of emergency uh, <laughs> emergency action that you do to. Uh, get your rifle ba- or whatever weapon system you're running back up and running again so anyways uh i thought i'd while we're in this kind of like gray area between he and i he's he's often really busy with uh with work and i'm really busy with work and so we have the, the scheduled we're gonna do get this podcast done this part two done next week uh but while we're waiting, I thought I would go ahead and release another podcast. Well, I've got a little free time right now because um, early in the morning. And I figured I'd go ahead and release something uh, so that people could have something useful to listen to. Um, so I hope, I hope this helps. Okay, so we're going to cover a very nuanced and uh, <laughs> emotionally charged topic uh, this is a gear topic, and for some reason that always has, you know, very high emotional emotional attachments, right? So I could talk about logistics, uh, right? That's that's garners very little emotional backlash, garners very little emotional response. But as soon as you challenge someone's preferred uh, camouflage uh, or their preferred, um, you know, clothing brand or whatever, things get a bit heated. So. Um, and because there's actual legitimate investment in that, um, with logistics, it's, it's less about, you know, it still has some monetary investment in it and can be quite a lot of monetary investment, especially if you're a prepper, but, uh, it's, it also involves a lot of soft skills like networking with your community and people outside of your community in order to, whenever your preps run out or whenever to supplement your prep, being able to get a supplies worked in, right? So you can go and listen to my logistics podcast. Uh, 
if, if you'd like some more information on that. Sadly, a little bit of the audio is effed up in that. Um, I apologize for that. Maybe one of these days I'll go back and redo the audio um, so that it's a little bit better and a little bit easier to listen to. Anyways, uh, moving on. So I'm going to actually get into the topic of camouflage and I'll also cover um, not just camouflage, but also clothing, like who would be a good good uh, company to buy from and what specifically things are, are uh, aspects of clothing that you're, you're looking for whenever you're buying stuff to wear out in the woods or, or in a combat scenario or something like that. Um, because it's not like you can just pick up any pair of pants with some sort of camouflage printed onto them and expect them to perform optimally uh, the way you want them to, right, out, out in the bush. So, um, so first we're going to push on into camouflage patterns, right? So why is this even a topic? You know, it's some, some part of it's intuitive. You think, like, of course, we can see, uh, ergo, you want something to be able to keep yourself from being seen, right? So it's kind of an obvious question, why do we want it? But there's a lot of uh, characteristics into it that, that are not really considered. So I'll go ahead and I'll start from the very beginning about what kind of vision we have um, and what that kind of lends itself to or help you help you understand why there's certain particulars to camouflage that we need, right? So um, with mammals, there's actually a variety of different types of sight. Uh, for some animals, color matters more than, than others. Uh, for some other animals, color matters very little. So, uh, for example, uh, some uh, grazing herbivores are notorious for being colorblind or being on the spectrum of colorblindness, right? So uh, whenever we talk about colorblind, uh, like specifically with deer, we think that like they see in black and white, right? Well, that's not necessarily true as far as I understand. It's just more or less a, a less of a uh, ability to differentiate uh, between a color spectrum than humans do. So, for example, some humans are colorblind, right? Sorry, I'm, I'm driving right now and I'm passing by a semi, so it's a little... It's a little loud. I'm being safe. Don't worry, but I'm just worried about the noise. So some humans are colorblind. Some humans are, for example, red, red, green, colorblind. And so, uh, what red, green, colorblindness does not mean is it, it doesn't mean you just see entirely in black and white. What red, green blindness means is that you have specific, um, inability to distinguish between certain colors on a spectrum. So, between red and green and a varieties of reds and a varieties of greens, you have a difficulty in distinguishing between the two. So if you have an issue with seeing uh, the difference between, say, a dark blue and black, you may be on the colorblind spectrum. Um, if you have a, different, a, a hard time seeing the differences between shades of brown, then you might have a colorblindness, okay? So... Um, just understand that whenever I'm referring to uh, the inability to see certain aspects of color, I'm not saying that these animals or certain humans are uh, incapable of seeing color at all, because it's not true. And that's that's something in the hunting community, that's something that gets a bit of a bad rap, because it's very bro science um, You know, bro science is very... Uh, 
very related to the workout community. And so um, guys will come up with their own little explanations as for why they do certain aspects of the workout. And uh, we call that bro science. There's not a lot of true science behind it. It's, it's a lot of uh, rationale that comes out of, you know, I, 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 I think this is how it works. I feel this is how it works. And that it really may be true or may not be true. So hunting, there's certain aspects of that that, uh, you know, that intuitive tactics hunting that works. There's, there's certain understandings of hunting um, that you get whenever you're a, a hunter for a long time, um, certain experiences that build up your wisdom. And, and then there's certain bro sciences where it's just been something that's been said for a long time um, that, uh, that isn't necessarily true. And so from what I understand, this thing about uh, deer being colorblind, where everybody just presumes they see in black and white, not necessarily true at all. You know, that's not what colorblind means. Now, um, insofar as the depth as to if they actually see color or not, I'm not specifically sure. So I, I can't say personally that I know. And so you're, you're probably wondering why I'm talking about deer right now, whenever this is like a, a podcast covering tactical topics. Don't worry, I'll, you'll, you'll understand where we cross over the boundaries here in a few minutes. But so... You know, I, I can't really, I'm not a biologist. I'm not a, a you know, <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a veterinarian. So I specifically, I don't know the specific uh, nature of deer's eyes, but I want you to understand that there's a difference between saying that, you know, someone's colorblind and saying that someone can't see color at all, right? They can only see black and white. So um, specifically mammals that are herders, grazers, uh, you know, uh, vegetable eating animals, um, uh, that are off, you would consider them prey. These are animals with, that have evolutionarily adapted to being able to see shapes specifically. So being able to, uh, look into their environment and discern shapes and cognitively associate certain shapes with danger. Right. And so, um, uh, that's different than predator eyes. So uh, prey eyes or her- herbivore eyes or grazer eyes are different than predator eyes because the way you obtain food, the way you move through your environment, the, the way you uh, gather information about uh, the environment, the way you assess risk in your environment is is going to, uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? So it, it was it the eyes that developed first or was it the... Um, was it the, uh, you know, obviously there was an environmental need that drove the evolutionary factor, but what aspect of the evolutionary uh, evolutionary process took first, right? Was it the eyes or uh, was it their ability, that cognitively their ability, and then their eyes followed suit? Not really sure. Um, that'd be a cool study. But um, so that's what herbivore eyes are like, right? So so a predator's eyes are, are eyes that are more adapted to uh, detecting movement, right? So technically, if we're, if we're talking, talking technically, a herbivore's eyes are going to be just generally better than a predator's eyes. Um, now, that's, that's not to say that all predator eyes are equal. So there's a lot of predator, like for example, an, an, uh, a predator like a, a bird, like a bird of prey is, has insane eyes. They can, de- they can detect their prey from, you know, heights that would astound you like 
they're soaring at like 5,000, 10,000 feet or something like that. Think about a, a hawk or an eagle, and they're way up there, and, and then they, uh, that might be a little too high, 2,000, 3,000 feet, I'm not exactly sure, but they're soaring way up there, and they, they see a, a rodent or a rabbit or something down on the ground, uh, and they're, they're able to dive bomb with precision and, and snatch their prey up from the ground, right? So no, not all predator eyes are equal. Uh, but there is a, a an evolutionary aspect that has caused a difference between predator eyes and prey eyes. So predator eyes are specifically adapted to detecting movement. And the reason being is that uh, a lot of predators are ambush predators. They're, uh, a lot of predators are trackers. So an ambush predator would probably be something more along the lines of a big cat, like a panther that waits up in the in a, in a top canopy and jumps down on prey. Um, a, a tracker predator might be something like a wolf, right, that, that scents out prey, that sniffs them out and, and follows the trail uh, and tracks them down. Uh, and then there's, there's other, I guess you could consider a bird of prey to be an ambush predator as well because it's, it's dive bombing from an, a, a surprising and un, unforeseen location. But these, these eyes of a predator, uh, they're less adapt to being able to see shapes uh, that are still, right? And so humans actually, um, we're, we're omnivores leaning on the carnivorous side. So we actually have eyes that are, uh, that are good for seeing both, but we lean towards the predator side. So we're, uh, we're better at, at discerning uh, objects and movement. So for example, um, if you see something um, uh, that's, that's camouflage. For example, I was on Instagram the other day, kind of scrolling through reels and there was, um, a bird that's perched up on a tree stump. And this bird has been adapted to have like a, Oh, I, I remember it was an owl, right? And so they have a, they have a gravelly, uh, looking, uh, coat of feathers, right? It's gravelly. It's gray, brown, and, and black colored feathers. And so he was perched on this, on this tree trunk and it was virtually impossible to see him while he was sitting still. Um, but he turns his head and then you can immediately see what is the owl and what is not, uh, the owl, what is the stump? You can see his outline, but as it, it, it requires him to move his head in order for your, your mind to be able to make the connection of, Oh, this is the owl. And you're able to see exactly what it is. It's, there's no question as to did that, that stump just move? No, it's, you can see on top of it. You're like, Oh, okay. I got it. It's a bird. Like almost immediately there's that mental connection that snap that where your mind recognizes that. And a lot of this is involuntary. It's an instinctual occurrence in your mind that is able to recognize aspects of the environment, but it requires that cue, that movement in order to send that neurological pathway firing. Right. So, um, now it, there's, there's certain shapes that humans do recognize, right? That even when they're sitting still and something that will aid you in seeing these shapes is to build up your perspective. So it's very hard for you to see something if you have very little perspective, perspective as to what it is. So I had never seen a gravelly looking owl perched on it, on a, uh, on a stump where it looks nearly identical like the stump, right? But perhaps a human that had been conditioned had seen those things in the woods, those aspects like owls out on stumps like that, or, you know, any, any given animal that might be 
uh, properly camouflaged. Uh, I'm a bit of a woodsman. I, I like to consider myself a woodsman, but um, there's certainly guys out there that are tons better than I am, right? So there are probably guys out there that would uh, look at that and they'd be able to recognize it without seeing the movement, right? And so, but the 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 common human trait is to be able to recognize what's there whenever the movement occurs. And then uh, if you're going to be the kind of human that's able to recognize shapes, well, you have to have some experience under your belt. And the same thing can be true to visualization with the, excuse me, um, the visualization with movement. It's just more intuitive for humans to be able to see it like that, right? It's, we're just better adapted to being able to see with uh, something in movement. So um, that's, uh, that, you know, that's, that's just something we're going to be able to pick up right off the bat. Sorry, I'm going by another semi-truck real quick. Um, another example of this is whenever you look at something and you don't exactly know what it is, and you crane your head around it to see from different angles. This is kind of the act of putting the object into the perspective of motion, even though it's it's at rest, right? So, whenever you're moving your head around in different angles, you're you're pr- projecting movement into your visual space and attempting to use that uh, to unlock cues in your mind. And you're not even aware that you're doing this. This is just something that you do naturally you're trying to observe from different angles and a part of that is trying to add a movement aspect uh seeing it because that that really is the cues um and a moving animal that we're picking up you know the different angles whenever an, an, an animal is moving uh against a still uh a a, a resting environment a resting backdrop we see an animal in movement we're seeing it at uh within just a few seconds it's occupying several places of space uh and the visualization the image is hitting our eyes at at different angles so that's what we're picking up on same thing whenever you're moving your head around to try to gain a better understanding of something that you don't quite understand that's sitting there right in front of you right so why do i say all these things because they do apply whenever you're um, choosing camouflage uh for combat scenarios because you're ultimately trying to defeat the human ability to recognize images and the human ability to discern what is uh, unnatural movement. Whenever I say unnatural movement, I'm, I'm specifically talking about humanly intended movement because there's, there's aspects of the environment that move um, whenever we're out in nature or heck, even in an urban environment that we don't necessarily pick up on, right? So things are moving you might be unconsciously aware that say these trees are swaying in the wind, uh, but you really don't make any mental conscious note of it. Right. So, um, it's not like any, any movement at all is going to set your instincts on overdrive, right? It's, it's certain aspects that your mind is going to key into, uh, that it might consider relevant or that it has a perspective on already, uh, that it's going to cause it to react. So you're trying to overcome these natural abilities and the learned experienced abilities of, of humans uh, whenever you're camouflaged. So there's several aspects of 
uh, the visual image and then the visual image's relationship to the environment that we're going to try to play into or defeat. So aspects of the visual image are going to be things like contrast, color, uh, shape, um, and pattern, right? So the contrast is going to be, um, this is a little bit of a relationship to the environment, but say, um, say it's a a super uh, a bright appearance of the object and then a dark uh, appearance behind them, right? So the specific name that we give uh, to this relationship between the object that you're looking at and the environment behind it is what's what's called silhouette, right? So um, a natural occurrence of this would be like a man standing up on the top of a hill. Um, so that is what's, what causes the relationship between object environment that we call silhouette. It, and it's a it's an instinctually and cognitively recognizable feature, uh, recognizable relationship between an object and uh, its environment. And the thing that, that uh, causes this is contrast. So it might be contrast of color. It might be contrast of pattern, what the uh, physical... Uh, characteristics on the object versus the physical characteristics on the environment. It might be location, right? So um, if you are located on the top of a bare hill, what's the, what we call the actual crest, that is going to create more of a silhouette than uh, if you are posted on the military crest of a hill. So the difference being the military crest is um, if you are standing on the side of the hill, just so long as your head comes below the actual crest, uh, the actual silhouette of the top of the crest of the hill, then you are standing on the military crest of the hill, right? So this is whenever we're covering tops of hills, whenever we're patrolling or hiking, you're actually, whenever you're going over a hill, you actually want to go on the military crest of the hill so that if you're, if someone is looking at you, you're never actually silhouetted against the top of the hill. Your net, your contrast is never against the bare sky, uh, on top of a hill, as opposed to being contrasted against, uh, actual earth and, and rock and, and, uh, whatever vegetation may lie on the military crest of the hill. So that's one aspect of it. What else did I say? Shape. So um, shape is just, you know, you're, you're going to have your shape naturally regardless. Um, and unfortunately, well, fortunately for us um, that we have this ability and unfortunately that our enemy also has this ability, uh, shape is naturally and instinctually recognizable by humans. So whenever... Um, you're looking at this. This is why you can look at a. Um, <laughs> you can turn around real quickly, and if there's a mannequin standing behind you, you know, and uh, and it's a it's a uh, right an unliving a non-living object. Uh, it's just a, a regular cardboard or something like that, or maybe it's a cardboard cutout that's standing behind you. If you turn around and see that, you can become startled, uh, or. Uh, Think it, think it is an actual person because humans have the ability to naturally recognize shape of other humans. And uh, so we, we see 
that human-like shape because we've cognitively and instinctually over the course of our genetic history made the association between the human shape and the presence of another human person. Uh, and uh, that is... Re- that obviously, it's kind of... Un- un- doesn't really need to be clarified. You just you see that shape, and you know a human is there. So you might be wearing a BDU, right, a battle dress uniform, or you might be wearing whatever camouflage. If they can still make out your shape, they're still going to cognitively associate what they're seeing with a human. So they might not necessarily know what you are, or I, I guess they might not necessarily uh, co- consciously see you, but they might pick up on the shape that's there and they might get the feeling the instinctual feeling that there is a human there or they might even consciously see you and although they they're having a hard time distinguishing your physical pattern that you know the the pattern of of uh characteristics on your person they have might be having a hard time distinguishing that from the characteristics the pattern of the environment behind you they might still be able to see your shape uh and uh, identify you as a human. Okay, so this is the same aspect, the same the same concept that occurs with a um, with a predator or prey in the wilderness, right? So, so uh, in in the case of like many wild deer that have never experienced humans before, they might see if you go hunting for them, they might see you. And I, I truly think this happens a lot more than we give it credit for uh, in hunting a uh, prey animal like a deer might very well see you. They might very well have a uh, complete understanding that you're there. However, their perspective as to what you are, they might not have developed this instinctual understanding of what your shape is. For example, if a, if a certain line of deer or a certain deer has never experienced humans before, they might very well see you but not recognize you as a threat because it, you, they haven't associated the human shape before now humans obviously do understand quite well what the human shape is um and so uh golly this guy's swerving all over the road um so so anyways uh there's no doubt that a human will be able to pick up on your shape. So the thing that you're going to try to do is break up your shape. And so this is going to be um, something that's going to uh, cover, I guess, it's in addition to your camouflage pattern. It's not going to, your camouflage pattern really isn't going to break up your shape at all. It's going to have to be something that you add to it. So it might be webbing right so a laced webbing that you maybe add to your helmet or you add to your hat or uh and with this laced webbing it's like an elastic webbing it looks like a fishnet that you put over your helmet or your hat and you can add in grasses or leaves to the the top of your head so that that you know that human round head of yours is broken up and appears more shrub like um, you can wet, if you've got molly webbing on your LBE, you can, uh, wind grass through that, uh, so that, uh, the same thing is happening to your torso, right? And so then there's physical aspects that you can do, um, uh, to break up your, your human shape as well. So 
for example, standing upright is going to be the most obvious human shape. You're getting a full full picture view of the human body. Someone looking at you while you're standing upright is probably going to immediately recognize you as a human due to your shape. If if not if they don't see any other characteristic about you that I had mentioned before, then um, they might recognize you for your shape. Um, uh, the the kneeling position, one that where the only half the human body is is upright, then that's going to be less recognizable, but still recognizable. And then the prone position is obviously going to be the best one. You can, st- I mean, if someone sees your head, that's in all aspects of human of human culture and human society. Every everybody recognizes the roundness of the top of the human head. Um, however, in the prone position. Uh, that's just going to be better at breaking up your shape, especially since it's better at putting you behind cover or concealment. Okay, so um, there's a... And also, obviously, it keeps you out of the line of enemy fire. Um, So moving on from that, so we have uh, contrast and shape, right? So then we have pattern. And this is going to be the topic that we get mainly into whenever we're talking about camouflage patterns. Um... So pattern is a specific reference to what your physical characteristics look like on your body. So whenever I'm looking at you, it's the image of your body. Um, not your sh- not talking about your shape. I'm talking about what, what the image of your body looks like. And then the, the contrast between that and remember, I'm not talking about the contrast as in the characteristic, but I'm talking about contrast as in, I kind of mentioned it before, the difference between your physical pattern and the physical pattern of the terrain behind you. Um, humans, since we don't have fur, really, I mean, some guys do, but even whenever you have a lot of body hair, we simply don't have very good, um, physical pattern, uh, naturally bare skinned. Um, so if you look at something like a deer, its physical pattern is great. Um, it's got the color of, uh, it's got the, the, the color of a natural, you know, like that tannish grayish color. And then if you look at, at the front of a deer, it's bib, it's the white chest, um, is something that really does great to break up a silhouette or, uh, more along the lines of guys use that word silhouette just kind of interchangeably, but what it's actually breaking up is the, um, it does a way of breaking up shape specifically, and you can actually break up your shape with your pattern, but it also causes uh, an s- extreme degree of, uh, dist- uh, I guess, uh, variance between you and your uh, your environment when regard to the physical pattern. So uh, if you look like, if you have a regular deer torso, it's gonna look like a regular deer torso. Um, that's one flat color. If you put a mix of two colors in there, especially with one large splotch of uh, color that is contrasts against the other piece of pattern, it's going to make it harder to recognize. And you might not think of it this way, but uh, if there's a deer standing at a tree line, uh, if it's got that white bib on its chest, it's actually a lot harder to recognize than you think it is. Um, Other aspects of this are going to be like uh, darkness around the, uh, darkness around the, uh, not the eyes. You want lightness in the more shaded area. So if you have like, like a, a socket, like your eye sockets, for example, you want lightness around there and darkness around 
the characteristics of the face so you might see this on deer you might like the the black nose and the black lines uh on the tops of the nose and around uh, the eyebrows and stuff um this is going to be aspects that uh, of darkness that break up the often reflective uh areas the protruding areas of the face and of the skull that would reflect uh light easier so ears hopefully are going to have a, a darker color on the brim of the ears and maybe a lighter color in the uh, more concave regions of the ears. Um, the nose will have a darker color, hopefully, and then uh, cheekbones, stuff like that, will have a darker color, and all the other areas are filled in with a, a lighter color. And so this is making that contrast between what you would normally think of as reflective um, it's actually now darker, and what is generally darker is now brighter due to the disruption of the physical pattern. So there's some animals that have physical patterns that you think would make them quite obvious to see, but actually do not. Um, so for example, a, a, a tiger, like a Bengal tiger, um, they have what we would call like an orangish uh, colored you know, uh, oranges colored uh, coat of fur and with black stripes. And so you look at those, the color schemes independent of, of how they actually work in the environment. And you think, uh, how, how do animals not see this? Right. And so, but what actually they're, you know, they get down close to the ground uh, whenever they're stalking or that whenever they're crawling. And so they're that orange what you and i would call orange which actually is probably more along the lines of decaying leaf color um it allows them to virtually disappear into the slashes of shade of of you know jungle vegetation where various vegetation is casting long lengths of shadow viney shadows and then um the orange coat is just appearing as the color of a uh, decaying leaf appearance, right? So, um, moving on, what else is there? What else did I mention? Um, All right, so I think the last point I was trying to make was uh, color. I'm sorry, I was having a little bit of an issue trying to remember what I had even... <laughs> one of the other points that I even said, one of the many issues of me going off on tangents and whatnot. So, uh, basically, it's the color is going to be one of these very basic uh, phenomenon of an image that's going to either allow you to draw attention or cause you to draw attention or allow you to remove attention from you, right? So, these are all basically these characteristics color, shape, contrast, or I'm sorry, color, shape, um, physical pattern, um, and then the contrast aspect, how they relate with the environment surrounding the object uh, in the image of our site is basically what's going to be associated with uh, the human figure, right? Or even, even if it's not a human figure, even if you don't look like a human, if you look like something else, a, a good philosophy behind this is like with camouflage you really you're not trying to look like a bush or a shrub or something like that per se you're trying to look like nothing i've heard it been said like that a lot and so you don't want to gather any attention right you don't want to draw the sight of anybody you want someone's sight to pass right over you you want to look completely natural um 
And so you don't want to disguise yourself as something. You just want to break up the image entirely, right? So um, you're not... If it's not like you're gaining someone's attention, but you're disguised as some, someone else, so they look over you, or something else, so they look over you. It's like they are looking around and they see nothing there, right? It's just you're you're blended in completely into the variety of stuff that's that's in your environment. You're not gaining any of their attention. So color is the aspect of obviously the shade of color that uh, your uniform or your your um, LBE, your load-bearing equipment, or uh, your pack, your ruck, or whatever it, it be that you have on you is consistent with the environment. And so what I mean by this is, for example, it w- it's foolish to wear multi-cam black. It's, it's a camo pattern, right? It's a camouflage pattern. Does it work? No, not, not at all in my opinion. It doesn't really even work at night. Um, the best camouflage at night uh, for, for nighttime operations is the camo that works during the day because shade, you know, shadow is going to darken it naturally. It's really, really the, the best camo to use at night is whatever camo that you're using for, the, for that environment during the daytime. It's just the same principles apply at nighttime as they do during the day. The absence of light isn't going to change anything, right? Um, Whenever you get IR involved, you start thinking about materials used, um, like how IR reflectant certain materials are. Um, but aside from that, and and there are a few patterns that break up IR, uh, you know, IR reflection better. But for the most part, the best camouflages that are gonna are for for nighttime activities are going to be the the camouflages that worked well during the day. And so, uh, an example is like I was going on beforehand, multicam black, uh, is not good for really anything. Um, it's the definition of whenever you look on, uh, on a cry precision's website, their, um, their descriptions for their camouflage patterns, multicam black is actually the description that they give is actually to make the wearer look more authoritarian or make them look more authoritative. So it's intended for police right it's intended so that to make police look scary basically is what it comes down to it's really no other reason it's not because it's a useful camouflage it's not because it's um it blends you in at nighttime it's not because uh it helps break up your ir signature or anything like that it's literally just to make someone look scarier so that people will obey what they say so that that's what that comes down to but the color aspect i keep getting off on these tangents um the color will uh, contrast with your environment if it's significantly darker, right? So you can always make a camouflage lighter, but you can't make it, or I'm sorry, you can always make a camouflage darker, but you can't make it lighter. And so um, actually khaki is a ton better than any darker camouflage. So if you were to go with a khaki or a coyote brown color, it's actually a very natural color. If you look at um, the like foliage, even during the summer, even during the greenest parts of the summer, um, the ground is likely covered with you know pine needles or or some sandy soil. The top of the soil being going to be the drier soil, or um, 
it might have dead leaves on it it's probably got dead leaves on it or it's got rocks which are going to be a grayish tan color so uh or other you know fallen fallen brush fallen foliage excuse me that's uh, (laughs) a the the wampums on the side of the road um so anyways uh if you use, for example, Ranger Green is one of my favorite patterns, or I, I guess it's not a pattern, but just one of my favorite colors for for uniforms. Now, whenever it gets into this into the winter, I'm going to use Ranger Green less, and I'm going to use Coyote Brown more because the Coyote Brown during the winter time uh, in my area, winter is literally an arid season, so actual desert camos will work very well during the winter time so dcu um the chalky chip uh camouflage the triple color chalky chip camouflage aor2 marpet desert um uh let's see uh you know coyote brown and then um you know all the other various tropentarn or whatever it is what the german the german tropentarn which is the um, fleck tarn that's made with arid colors and it's got so it's got tan and kind of like a grayish tan and browns and greens splotched on top of the the tan base it's a great camouflage and for the winter time because there's virtually all the grass is dry all the brush and foliage is dry uh the leaf layer on the ground is dry and decaying so that's all brown it, it becomes an arid looking area um, you actually have to go down deep into valleys in order and where streams are in order to get more of a um, more of a green color or be around pine trees a lot and even then the pine needles are way up tall right so it's 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 just not gonna work very well for you uh, going with something that's very green <clears throat> so uh, during the summertime however there's plenty of patterns that work very well in summertime so um, actually in summertime you can utilize desert camouflage uh, desert camouflage because it's a very tans a very natural color it's gonna work even during the summertime um, you're worse off silhouetting yourself or I guess making yourself a more obvious shape with your uh, with your color choice if you choose dark than light so darker is always gonna make you a more obvious shape light is going to make you uh fit with the your color with the environment a little bit better so coyote desert camouflages stuff like that will always work fairly well decently well they're they work decently year-round now you can do better during the summer using other stuff so i have pencock green zone which is an incredible um an incredible uh, pattern for probably three quarters of the year spring summer and fall it r- works really well because it uses it's although it's called a green zone it is a brown and tan dominant pattern it's a digital pixelated camouflage with numerous shades of different colors that are very natural so it has greens and the reason it's called green zone is because the greens in it are there's both a, a darker pinish green but more prominent on the outside uh it's kind of like a layered pattern on the outside is a very bright uh kind of a not a not a uh, neon green or anything like that but a, a bright leafy green color and it works very well to disrupt uh shape that does the the brighter brighter color works well to disrupt shape and so 
the darkers make a good very like a the the darker brown and then the tan brown which are like the base layers make an incredible base color because those are actually the more prominent color in the pattern they're just a little less noticeable um to, to your regular eye you know to just looking at them the brighter color is going to jump out the brighter green however that that tan and a little bit darker brown is what you're going to normally see whenever you're looking at the ground uh if someone's in a prone position or what's what lays behind them um the 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 brown and the tan is more prominent even in the summer on the ground so uh it, it just works green zone works very well um probably be getting a field shirt i have have combat pants combat trousers with knee pad inserts and uh, a combat shirt with it in i i've personally kind of been working my myself away from combat shirts and moving more closer to field shirts so combat shirts are where the the um and it's nothing wrong with combat shirts they work completely fine it's just a certain philosophy of utilizing them so combat shirts are the uh, they're the kind of Under Armour-ish uh, chest layer. And then on the exterior, it's got the camouflage sleeves. And that's more of like a ripstop material. So the reason I might choose something that, something that would work well with that is like a plate carrier. A plate carrier works really, really good with uh, these combat shirts because the place that needs so much ventilation, uh, so much, I guess, sweat wicking is going to be your chest, right? Uh, sorry if there's a big noise, there's a semi-truck beside me. And that's a little bit less. I mean, you can still work really well with it on, uh, even hiking great distances. You can, I'm not talking about the plate carrier, I'm talking about the, the combat shirt. You can put, on, put it on under a chest rig or under other load-bearing equipment under, rec, under, under a ruck, and it could work very well with you. The thing about a field shirt is it's, all over the body, all, or I'm sorry, all over the torso, not just on the arms, is this ripstop material. So it's going to work really well about keeping brush off you if you're doing longer distance recce style stuff, patrols and, and explorative expeditions uh, in the field where you're in the brush or laying on the ground in the prone position for long periods of time. Uh, that that ripstop material, that more durable material of a field shirt is going to be more convenient at keeping the bush off you, keeping your flesh a little bit more tender and not scraped up and battered by rocks and other debris on the ground whenever you're in prone position doing observational stuff. A lot of guys just forget how... It's probably because civilians just don't do it, but whenever you set up an observational post, whenever you're making a patrol base... Uh, stuff like that, you're just almost never on your feet, man. You're you're going to be on the ground, especially if you're observing people who can see you. You do not want to be standing, right? And so you want to be on your belly um, with your you know rifle and stuff beside you with a uh, <laughs> yeah on your belly. I mean, I mean, I'm not really going to go farther deeper into it, but just basically the point I was trying to make is you're on your belly, right? So. Uh, that ripstop material is going to guard you a lot better than that uh, the synthetic uh, sweat wicking layer of the combat shirt. Continuing forward with that, uh, the field shirt, you can also unbutton it far down for ventilation. So if you're on, on a ruck, start to get a bit hot, instead of relying on the 
fabric of the combat shirt to wick your sweat away. You can literally just unzip or unbutton your uh, field shirt and all of your sweat's going to dissipate out through the opening in the front of the field shirt. So that's something really cool about field shirts. Now, both have their time, both have their place. You can also use a field shirt to layer up if it's a colder season. Um, by the way, whenever it comes to this, if you're rucking long distance or doing any sort of movement and you're staying out of the field for any long periods of time in the winter time, whenever it's cold, you really need to be focused on heat management and sweat management. So what that means is you might get very warm. So let's say you put a, a coat on, um, in the, in the winter, whenever you're hiking, you might get rather warm, um, it's, be it's better to start cold in, in just a shirt or just a, f a field shirt um, so instead of layering up. but So you can get really warm out on the hike, and then you're sweating into it, right? You're, and then you'll usually take off your jacket at that point. You might say, oh, gosh, I'm so hot. Take off your jacket. Um, and then th what's going to be the issue is instead of having maintained a, a neutral temperature so that you didn't start sweating or uh, had, had less clothes on you anyways so you didn't start sweating, um, your, that sweat is going to cling to you and it's really not going to dissipate and uh, whenever you come to a, a halt right wherever you set up a patrol base or you set up a watch you double back on your your trail to set up a watch to make sure you're not being followed or you set up an operation uh, I'm sorry uh, observation post or you know XYZ where you come to a, a, a halt you, you start performing security uh, whenever you or even if you're just resting on the trail that sweat is going to remain on you because the temperature of the air outside is not going to be hot enough for it really to be uh, evaporating off your skin. And then it's going to go cold. It's going to lose its its heat. And your skin is going to lose its heat as you're sitting, you're not moving around. And it's going to immediately get cold. Uh, and that's a really good way to go. If it's really cold, you can go hypothermic that way, especially if you stop for a long period of time. Um, or And it could it could just be you're really really uncomfortable and you don't get to sleep at night right so you're stuck in your sleeping bag shivering because uh you can't get warm because you sweated so much during the day um so wool is a really good one uh wool material uh if you get wool shirts that's a like wool base layers that can work really well or you can just use your regular field shirt to dissipate sweat uh and just don't layer up start cold start uncomfortable uh, maybe start even in the winter where, where you're trembling a bit, right? Uh, whenever you start, you'll quickly warm up um, so that you don't have to deal with that crap. Anyways, uh, so wool, the uh, material, it retains about 75% of its heating properties, or its, I guess, insulative properties, uh, despite being wet. So it's really, really is a cool, um, cool material because you got to remember it that's that you get wool off of animals especially merino wool it's a really good material you get wool off of, off of sheep wool sheep and uh the wool is designed specifically to keep the sheep cold or i'm sorry keep the sheep warm in the cold even after whenever it's raining right so the the sheep's wool has to be able to keep them warm even in adverse conditions like snow and, and water um contrast that with cotton which is a plant fiber it's really not designed for that at all it doesn't had it loses its heating or, or insulative properties once it gets wet so this is even in in, in the winter time 
it could even be a consideration to keep a wool blanket in your sleep system, like a small wool blanket, so that you're able to stay warm in the night uh, despite wetness. Um, so that's just an idea right there. Um, anyways, getting back to patterns uh, or getting back to uniforms uh, and colors, <clears throat> I'd say summertime. Um, some good patterns are green zone, AOR2. It's, it's the Naval Special Warfare number two or maybe number three. I think number two, or number one was, uh, Naval Special Warfare number one was that weird blue digital pattern that the Navy had for a while. I think, is it number two or number three that is actually the uh, the new, like, or it's not new, but it's AOR2. Uh, the SEALs were using it as their woodland camouflage for a while there. Anyways, that's, that's a, AOR2 is a really, really great, um, really, really great pattern. Um, for summertime ranger green works well for spring summer and fall i would say um, woodland pattern works well up until winter um that's m81 woodland um guys are probably going to be like what about multicam here's the thing about about multicam and something that you also need to consider whenever you're choosing your patterns on your uniform patterns even more uh, than just, you know, disrupting the human figure from a visual perspective, they're also about identification. So um, whenever you're looking around at your guys, you can tell that they're your guys by the pattern of, of gear, the, the pattern that's on their uniform and the pattern that's on their gear, right? So um, if you see uh, fighters that are not wearing that uniform, then it's a safe bet that they're not your dudes. So what it's going to boil down to is, is that a massive chunk of the world now uses multicam variants. So you have like almost all NATO, NATO, or like United States and NATO allies use multicam or OCP or Scorpion or uh, some other different type of multicam variant. Russia also uses a multicam variant. Um, I'm not familiar with China's color, but I wouldn't be surprised if they had some sort of multicam variant. And so it's going to be, if you wear that, you're going to be immediately associated with uh, like a, basically the, <laughs> the global, uh, the global militarized, um, I, won't, I don't want to say new world order, but <laughs> you understand what I'm saying. That's, you're just immediately thought of as a, a governmental agent, basically. And so... Um, you know, for the for the most part, it, it's not going to do you any harm. Training on the range and stuff like that, it won't it won't do you any harm. Um, but if if something were to happen, like a, a collapse situation, you can get lumped in with a, a big a large group of people or misidentified for people that you're not. Um, and also, if you have a group of guys and you're all running multicam, and then but like also other, I guess contenders or. Uh, other combatants that you might run to might also be running multicam. It's just way too widely used to be distinguishably usable by you, if that makes sense for identification purposes. So you need to keep that in mind. Um, now, with that being said, multicam arid is really good. I don't, the regular multicam color, it works. It works generally. Um, the issue being is that it, um, there's certain situations where it works fairly well, like summertime, um, just about 
most most woodland places in America, it will work decently in the summertime. And it'll even work into the fall, spring, and a little bit during the winter. The, the main issue being is that with these, these camouflages that are made to be universal camouflages, they work decent or, I guess, adequate for most of the year, but they're never really actually that good. They're, you know, th- there's, a big de- there's a big difference between being an adequate camouflage and truly being a good camouflage. Um, you could find a lot better, and you could probably f- uh, find cheaper stuff, too. Um, although multicam is just so prolific right now that you could walk into just about any Milserp store uh, and find something in, in uh, multicam. I can't go without talking about real tree camouflage. It's the HUD, or I'm sorry, HUD, FUD uh, hunting camouflage. And um, honestly, I personally don't have any issue with real tree camouflage. The bigger issue is going to be finding. Uh, finding gear that's actually good like the quality gear the quality clothes that you get are actually good now, I'm not saying you can't find it but a lot of the stuff that you're going to find in Realtree are going to be you know cotton hoodies cotton trousers stuff like that where it's going to be um, you know I don't want to say Walmart brand stuff but it really it, it the, the variance the, there's a high degree of, of diversity of quality between the stuff that you find Realtree printed on, right? So, um, and a lot can be said about other patterns in the same way, but you need to keep an eye on it because it's you can't just go anywhere and pick up uh, Realtree trousers or Realtree shirt and expect it to work well, right? Um, so, uh, really good combat trousers or uh, or. Uh, hiking trousers or combat pants and stuff like that are going to have stretchy crotches, um, stretchy knees and other areas that are where the seams that are prone to blown out being blown out with extended movements, um, a high degree of, you know, range of motion and, and impacts and, and wear and tear and stuff like that, where those seams would otherwise blow out that stretchy material, um, sewn into spaces in between seams will allow some give so that your seams don't blow out. That's going to be something huge that you have to consider with, uh, the, uh, the, the, and that, you know, that holds true for your shirts too, not just your pants, but your pants are a big one because of the ass blows them out. Anyways. Um, so yeah, uh, the quality can, there could be a huge degree of quality difference between the two or between real tree and, and, uh, other, well, more well-known, uh, I got a cop coming up behind me. That's why I'm kind of slowing down here. Wasn't for me, not today. <laughs> um, so anyways, moving on. Um, so color is going to be a, a major aspect that you need to consider because obviously you shouldn't be going with dark stuff and, um, you need to keep the color consistent with your environment for the right season that you're in. Um, and there's some colors that work great for generally all seasons. Khaki is going to be a, a really, really great, uh, color. Um, a lot of, like, uh, Marpat, uh, Marpat Desert, you know, uh, AOR1, I believe, is the desert, uh, the desert version of the the navy naval special warfare camouflage 
um, Trumpetarn. They're all really good. That These tan colors are all really, really good. Um, but you can do better in the summer by, by better... Uh, how do I want to say this? Finding a color that specifically works for your time and place. It's So basically what I'm saying is, although that some, some camouflages work well or work decently in all situations, uh, I wouldn't necessarily rely on that because you can do better. And there really isn't any reason that you shouldn't do better unless you just don't have the money to be able to do it, right? Um, in which case, I understand, do what you can, man. Just take these principles and use them the best you can. Some other things about clothing that you need to consider are uh, what your group can easily find and what they can easily afford. So, um, Coniferous Origins on Instagram, he runs a podcast called uh, The Longhouse, and he did a really, really great, one of his earlier episodes about this, uh, he did a really, really great episode talking about this. Um, if you find a really great pattern, that's good, but if it's very hard to get, um, and it's very hard for your guys to get, like as in you have to ship it in from a foreign nation, um, it really doesn't help you that much because a lot of people forget that clothes are consumables. They do break, they do blow out, um, and you can only stitch them up so many times before they just fall apart. Uh, so it doesn't help to buy a, uh, pair of G3 cries or, uh, UF pro, uh, you know, combat trousers that are in some niche, I'll be a great camouflage, but niche camouflage if you're going to wear them out in the first month or so if something were to ever go down. So um, it re- would really help to find a, a uh, I want to say it's a dealer, <laughs> some sort of dealer, uh, some sort of uh, manufacturer or distributor um, in your country, right, uh, that makes patterns that you deem using these principles to be good for your setting and for your seasons um, and would be cheap enough for your guys because you you remember you do identification based on your uniform type based on your your uniform pattern um, so that all your guys can get them you can get them fairly easily and it's if there's some sort of issue with international shipping or something like that like we had with COVID um, you're not going to run into any issues getting more supplies or stocking up on on clothes because <laughs> what is it going to help you to have one pair of g3 cries if if there was a collapse what are you going to do wear the same pair of pants every single day for years just no dude uh you need to have good working clothes that can last you well and a good supply of them so um i'm honestly i i love manufacturers like carhartt uh, Duluth. Um, I, I really want to get some stuff from TrueSpec. So TrueSpec's actually really affordable. I just haven't gotten around to buying some of their stuff yet. They make stuff in a variety of, of, uh, material options. So you can get like entire cotton ripstop, which is going to be hot and it's going to retain your water. And most of their, um, a lot of their camouflages are printed onto, they have a very high degree of, of uh, camouflage patterns that you can get on those, but they're 100% cotton ripstop. Or you can get 50-50, which is 50% polyester, 50% cotton ripstop, which is going to be a lot better at 
um, allowing your sweat to dissipate while still maintaining a ripstop property. In other words, if you're, um, if you're, uh, you get snagged on brush or something, it's not gonna, if you ever seen polyester get snagged by brush, it like starts pulling out in little, little clumps of fabric. And so, uh, uh, and then they have the, their ascent line, which is also, I hear is really, really great. Um, high, like high, um, high quality stuff. It's something along the lines of 60 or 70% polyester and, uh, 40, 30 or 40%, uh, cotton stuff. So now the, there, some of these other lines don't necessarily have camouflage patterns on them, but they are in natural colors. So you can get them in khaki or ranger green or OD green or something like that. But anyways, uh, so the, the stuff that's higher, a higher amount of polyester, it's going to be really good for wicking your sweat away. Um, the stuff that have higher degree of cotton in them, it's going to be really good for, uh, for not ripping apart whenever you, uh, get them snagged on stuff. Right. So, uh, and there's the age old debate about what you want in your, in your uniform, right? And so, like, what what materials do you want in your uniform? Uh, whenever guys were getting blown up all the time and with IEDs and stuff like that, uh, the polyester considerations, uh, you know, it was it was it was kind of bad to have polyester in your clothing um, or something like a, a polyester or plasticky material or some sort of synthetic material because. Uh, if you get blown up and heat touches your clothing, um, like a, like an open flame or something like that, the polyester will melt, right? And so it'll melt to your skin and then it's just like, it's so bad. You have to like dig out your flesh and stuff in order to get it out off of you. And it's really, really bad. It can result in really, really bad burns, um, versus cotton. Uh, so there was a, there was a trend back to uniforms made with, uh, you know, cotton blends because cotton, whenever touched by heat, um, will just burn and it'll, it'll burn off you and you might get burnt, but it's not like it's going to melt onto you and and stick to your skin. Um, so that was a consideration for a while when guys were getting more blown up and stuff like that. I mean, depending on where you are, it might still be a consideration for you. However, I think that that, that, the melting aspect is something a little bit more overplayed than what it should be. Um, if you're in the woods, right in the woods, or even if you're in an urban setting, um, and doing patrols and stuff like that, there's better factors to consider. Um, like what is the ability to wick away sweat? Polyester is going to be better for that. What is the ability to stop, um, you know, rippage of your, of your seams, ripping of the seams or, um, having spacer material between the seams. That's polyester is going to be a really good, um, stretcher. Um, and what's better for, for ripping, uh, or keeping from ripping, uh, against, you know, brush or rock or stuff like that, whenever you're in a prone position or whenever you're hiking through brush or briars or anything like that, well, that's cotton ripstop. So it might be a good idea to have a good blend of both, right? And so have some that are a good 50-50, have some that are primarily cotton and have, or cotton ripstop specifically, and have some that are more oriented towards polyester for summer months. Anyways, TruSpec has a really good, I'm not, I'm not, I don't even have really any true spec clothes. 
I just think it might be, um, it might be a, they have some good stuff. I've checked out their website and they have some good stuff and I plan on buying from them in the future. Um, and, but the, a, a big aspect about TrueSpec is that it's very affordable, right? It's affordable for guys in the United States. Um, you can hoard up a lot of it. It's like paying 60 bucks for a pair of pants as opposed to paying 150 to 200 bucks for a pair of combat pants. Um, so yeah, anyways, that's that on where ideas to buy. So to wrap this, uh, conversation up a little bit, I'm going to try to bring in a few more talking points, uh, to finish it up. Just try to do it real quick. Um, I mentioned wool earlier and, uh, it's really great. Like, uh, to have wool as a part of your kit for a part of your sleep system. And I'd also recommend it for, uh, wetter seasons as a clothing option or, uh, wetter seasons or sorry, colder seasons. So, I talked about the merits of wool earlier, but as to finding wool garments, it can be a bit difficult because um, if you're trying to find wool trousers, I mean, actual like duty style trousers, or um, I guess you're, they're going to be more like a, a bushcraft style trousers or a hunting trousers uh, that you'll find in wool. Uh, they're going to be fairly expensive. You could potentially find them um, from, I think Helicon Tex has some uh, wool trouser types. I think they, it's in their bushcraft line. Um, and also these are, if you, if you find trousers designed like that, or, you know, anoraks or shirts designed like that, they're going to be more along the lines of something that you'd wear during a cold season or a winter month. So, um, it might be more ideal to stick with a cotton or a polyester type or like, you know, a blend, uh, and this is going to be, have to be a judgmental type deal that you're, you're working with. Right. So, uh, I personally don't think there's many situations where you want to go entirely with cotton. Um, a lot of your really good, uh, a lot of your really good, like a, a battle dress or combat trousers are going to be a blend, uh, or at least it's gonna, they're going to have some components that are cotton ripstop and some components that are a polyester, like a stretch material or a sweat wicking material. So uh, there's very seldom, uh, you know, very seldom a time when I think you, it's good to go entirely with a polyester material or entirely with a cotton ripstop material. So, for example, um, I have some they're like proper uniforms or that's the brand proper. And so they make kind of like repo reproduction, um, uh, combat or battle dress uniforms to be to use. And so I have some, some multicams there, they're 100% ripped cotton ripstop. And so they get very, very hot. They get, you get super sweaty in them, right? If you wear them like during the summer months or even during the warmer times of spring and fall, you get pretty sweaty in them. And then, uh, they wear, right? So, uh, whenever they get older, the patterns start to fade on them. If they've been washed numerous times, the pattern starts to fade. Uh, the more you drag them through the brush and stuff, the more faded they appear. And whenever cotton gets faded, it gets reflective. So it starts looking bleached or a white color. Um, and especially at the areas that, uh, like the bending areas, so like around the elbows, shoulders, um, knees, etc. And so that's going to be areas that are going to be kind of reflective. Uh, so you might even have to, you know, re-dye them 
if, uh, if you get 100% cotton. So, and then of course, um, they become very bad whenever they become wet, right? And so if you try to use 100% cotton, say during the winter, that's going to be very bad for heat regulation. Uh, compare that to polyester, um, 100% polyester, it has, some. Um, issues as well so like uh it won't fade necessarily from wear or for from washing but the uh if you're going through brush i think i might have mentioned this before like the if it snags on the polyester it'll pull it out in like little clumps like so you'll have little ball looking pieces of of fabric hanging on the outside of your polyester from where um it's been the the fibers have been ripped out of it and uh also it's just poor for insulative properties during the winter months. So um, even if you wick your sweat away with polyester, if it's 100% polyester, it's going to be very hard to keep you warm at all during uh, stable times, like uh, times when you're at rest or, or whatever. So you might not have an issue with your sweat uh, freezing you, but you'll have the issue of there's just no insulative layer at all. And so... Um, it's a good blend of the two fabrics is ideal and uh having wool options i almost always even during summer months will have wool base layers um i might not be wearing them but i'll have them in my bag as an option right so i always want the option there uh there's actually been nights that i've been out during summer nights and i'll camp down i'll camp out down by a creek and um I've even done this without a sleep system before. I'll just take like a tarp or something and I'll say, uh, I really don't need, I'll be in a hammock with a tarp over me or, or under a tarp on the ground. And I'll say, uh, I'll just sleep on my sleeping pad or I'll just sleep on top of my sleeping bag or something like that. And, um, uh, I really won't need, uh, any sort of sleep system because it'll be too hot. But whenever you're down there by a Creek, uh, or a, a river or some sort some other sort of source of water they're usually in a low la- low area so uh, colder air is more dense than hot air so uh, cold air always sinks so it's going to sink to the low area so if you're down by a creek it'll sink down to the low area also heat uh, heat disbursement uh, of, of the water you know there's it's going to be colder by nature of heat heat disbursement down by the water um and you're more like, likely to get a breeze through a valley if you're down by a creek. And so anyways, I've had numerous nights. You'd think I'd learn after one time. But it's it, it had been situations where, like, I would think, oh, well, it's, it's not really going to matter. It's not going to be like last time. And I'll camp down by a creek and get frigid. It'll get, you know, down to uh, 50, 60 degrees. And um, if your body temperature drops even, like, 2 or 3 degrees... Uh, down below the norm, your body will go into tremble mode, right? You're, you'll start trembling you're, uh, because it's going down below the usual uh, range of temperature that it's comfortable at, right? So technically, it does not have to be freezing cold in order for you to go hypothermic. Um, you can go hypothermic on a, on a cool summer day or a cool summer night uh if you were to lay on concrete with a bare back and that the concrete sucks your heat out even on a a hot day you could if you're laying on concrete naked um 
and the concrete itself isn't heating, say the concrete is in the shade or something like that, uh, and the concrete itself isn't heating up, that concrete can make you go hypothermic because the concrete sucks that uh, warmth out of your body. It, I don't think that's necess- you're ever necessarily going to be in a survival situation where you're stuck naked on a concrete pad. I'm just giving an example. You can go hypothermic on a cold on, or on a cool summer's day, or uh, having been you know in a in a rain or with high high amounts of wind or something like that. So the conditions you might think that um, you're in good conditions and you won't go prepared for something. And I'm uh, I'm not saying to overdo it, but you might not be prepared because you don't think something bad or unexpected will happen and then you get stuck with your pants around your ankles anyways going past that i want to cover a topic real quick and this is uh, fieldcraft and bushcraft in regards to camouflage so oftentimes even if you have the best camouflage pattern on your body on your uniform it's not enough really to uh break yourself up against a person unless you're a significant distance away from them Um, often you'll need to utilize bushcraft in order to do it so like i mentioned before using webbing or um, some sort of uh, net attachment to your uniform or different portions of your uh, load bearing equipment and then threading natural natural pieces through it like pieces of grass or leaf will do wonders to break up your shape and uh, you know, counteract the contrast with the environment so that you're be- better able to blend in. Um, additionally, uh, use of, you know, the positions like I talked about, and then uh, willfully choosing uh, good areas to position yourself in is always going to be key. And, you know, if you're, if you're digging a hole, if you're digging a fighting position, always choosing good areas that uh, has optimal cover and concealment uh, so that you don't have to fall back and rely on your camouflage pattern to be your saving grace in order to keep you out of the eyes of the enemy, right? So um, you can technically evade enemies' eyes very, very well, even if you're in just plain khaki or ranger green, if you utilize bushcraft methods or fieldcraft methods in order to uh, break up your shape, your pattern, uh destroy your silhouette you know um so you need to be it, it needs to be uh going past this just this idea of well if i just have this good camo pattern on me um then i'll be solid because it's not necessarily true and uh you need to be properly vetting that right you need to be training to use bushcraft in these regards and so how do you train that you go out with your buddies um and you should be vetting your camos with your buddies, right? You and your buddies should. You don't, All of you guys don't need to be wearing separate camouflages if you plan to stick together during a, a hard situation like a collapse or, or even civil uprising or something like that, right? So you need to have a camouflage or a, a uniform type that you can identify each other with so that you don't think each other are baddies and end up with, uh, you know... Fr- uh, <laughs> shooting on your friends or something like that or or misidentifying people um you need to be vetting the appropriateness of your camouflages to your setting right and so you need you and your buddies need to be going out and and training and uh have your buddies go and uh do 
patrol type, you know, reconnoitering type training where one team is the, the reconnoiters and one team maybe are ambushers. And you go out and you're, you have taken the, the ammo and the bolts out of your rifles. And um, so the group that's patrolling will be on the active lookout for the guys that are hidden. And um, this is a way of vetting your camouflage, just seeing how well you can be out in the in the forest or whatever setting you are with your camouflage and how well your camouflage will be breaking your breaking you up from guys who are invading your area um, and then uh, do the same thing with bushcraft go out and have have a group of guys who are practicing the bushcraft and then the group of guys that are coming hiking through and on the lookout for the guys that are hiding uh, and then switch it if if one team finds the other team switch it um, or have a certain time limit and after a certain time limit um, you guys, both teams convene, they, they, they stop the reenactment, they convene, they say what has been done right, what has been done wrong, what are some, some things that we can add on top of our uniform to make this work better, uh, etc. So these are just some tips for you guys. I hope this helps. Um, like I said earlier at the beginning of the episode, I'm going to try uh, Bad Robin or uh, his name on Instagram at remedial actions and, our, and I are going to get together this coming week and, and, uh, film everything. So, or I'm sorry, not film everything, uh, record, record everything for the, the rest of the podcast. So, uh, be on the lookout for that coming up in this, uh, this, uh, this next podcast, uh, after this one released. So, all right, guys, I hope this is helpful. Uh, shoot me a DM, DM, uh, in my Instagram, you know, my Instagram inbox. Now, uh, for every, everybody that does shoot me a DM, DM, uh, I might not be able to respond. I don't know if I've said this, if I've said this before in another episode or if I said it in this episode, I literally, if you're, you were to look at my, um, my Instagram DM inbox, if you look at the, it's called like the unread message messages or unaccepted messages, um, it's the people that follow me that might send me messages, but I'm, I'm not necessarily following them and I can choose to accept or decline their messages. I have, it says 99 plus on mine. So that means like well over 100 people have sent me messages and I'm able to look at them. Um, but I haven't necessarily accepted, uh, like their conversation. In other words, um, like I haven't gone in and intentionally typed out a response or anything like that. It's, I just can't get it to everybody, man. Um, I'm sorry about that. Uh, but I am, I do look through them and I do on the daily, I try, I try to look through them. And if people, especially questions with about concerning faith, uh, I try to answer those questions, some concerning gear. If I have, if it's a question about gear, a certain type of gear, and I've already answered it in the prior post, I'm probably not going to answer your DM. Um, cause if I do, I might just send you the post that I had, I had done before. It's just really a hard time for me to have to go back every single time and retype out everything that I've already covered in a post to send to people. So I'm so I, I apologize. I know not everybody's like, uh, Oh, I'll just look through his entire page and creep on his page to see if he's, he's posted or not. I just, uh, I'm not trying to guilt trip you on that or anything like that. I'm just saying, give me a little grace where it, it comes there because I, I can't answer every every question when it comes to it. But if you do have questions, I, I look through them on the daily. I might not answer right off, uh, but shoot them to me. 
Uh, if you have ideas about podcast episodes or, or posts or anything like that, shoot them to me. Uh, I'll try my hardest to, to read them and, and to respond if possible. Okay, guys, hope this has been helpful. God bless you. Goodbye.